Hello, Energy Radio podcast listeners. Before we get to the next episode, I would like to ask a quick favor from all of you. If you're getting value out of the podcast we are providing, we would love it if you could provide a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you are streaming on. This would help us a great deal. Also, if you could provide us feedback, comments, or ideas, email to matt at cemeng.ca. That would be fantastic. Enjoy the next episode. Welcome to Energy Radio, the podcast where we try to bring you information and knowledge to help you develop your energy-related projects. And on today's uh, show, I have a great guest, and we're gonna, it's going to be regional in its focus, but I think we'll have some good discussions about the energy transition and, and power and how hard this transition is. Uh, so without further ado, I will welcome our guest today, Travis Lesney of Power Advisory. Travis, welcome to Energy Radio. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Cool. Great to have you. And we've had lots of good conversations up until now. Uh, none of them recorded. Um, some for some with good reason, perhaps. Uh, but looking forward to discussing today the LT1 program here in Ontario uh, in particular. But first, Travis, probably beneficial to give the listeners a little bit of a glimpse of how you got to where you are today with Power Advisory, just a bit of your background and then tell us about what the firm does, and then we'll jump right in. Great. No, and, and you know, it's it's great to be on. Been a long time working with you and, and in the sector. So I'm I'm director of power systems at Power Advisory. We're a management consulting firm uh, in the electricity space. We operate across Canada, throughout the U.S., uh, offices in Boston, Toronto, and Calgary. And we do a wide range of things from traditional management consulting we're a mixture of engineers and economists, so we do kind of really deep fundamental needs base. Um, being the electricity sector, when you combine those two, we do a lot of strategy work. And also being the electricity sector, there's a lot of policy and regulatory and arbitration and litigation work. I, I, I'm pleased at times to be an expert witness in either regulatory proceedings or, or, or um, legal cases. I got here prior to joining Power Advisory. Um, I was a power system planner for the Ontario Power Authority, which is now part of the independent electricity system operator. Uh, and before that, I was a distribution uh, engineer with Hydro Ottawa. So unique background of, of T and D side of the business. Um, and I've been helping, you know, broad range, whether it's government agencies, industry associations, uh, technology and project developers, low customers, uh, and financiers one way or another. Yeah, I did not know that you started at Hydro Ottawa. I think I knew you were at the OPA, uh, but did not know that. And and can we give a shout out to your uh, engineering alma mater as well while we're at it? That is sad. So Queen's University, I did a bachelor okay. and a master's there in electrical okay. engineering. Uh, and, and I'm also alumni of Clark Hall Pub, uh, the engineer's pub on there, have been worked there for, for three years. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. Right on, right on. Well, uh, that's that's great to hear. So you are well positioned to chat about today's topic, which is in some ways timely, I think, and in other ways, uh, perhaps a little bit late and in other uh, respects, um, maybe a little bit early. There's a lot going on in the uh, power space. And maybe before we get into the program, Travis, uh, and I know that both you and I are Going a little bit off the cuff on this, but uh, I think we're both in it and, it and it'll be a good conversation. Maybe it's better to start with 
kind of giving some context in terms of where the the province is as it relates to to electricity primarily um and you know this this lt1 program i know it didn't catch you by surprise it quite frankly caught some of us by surprise uh, but i think once you set the table on the context then you know the rest of it uh, will make a bit more sense so if you can just give the listeners a bit of the context in terms of all the moving pieces in the ontario electricity world yeah the real basis comes down or is built up from uh you know fundamentally where we stand for the last decade Ontario has been long on supply, has not had a real reason to go procure new resources, and also just given our unique hybrid structure where uh, we have um, almost all the supply resources are either under long-term contract with the ISO or a rate regulated uh, by the OAB, there's been really no need for even a recontracting exercise. However, as we stand today and look forward, uh, that long on supply becomes short uh, quite quickly. Uh, and, and at Power Advisory, we've had a line with clients for quite some time that, you know, it, you can go from being fat, dumb and happy uh, to short and silly very quickly. And that, that's essentially what's happened. Um, in, when you look out to kind of 2030, um, based on the ISO's latest annual planning outlook and, and kind of confirmed from other viewpoints, we're looking at a need of in new supply resources between 4,000 megawatts and 6,000 megawatts of what's called an effective capacity. And that's the ability to meet peak demand. That's not the installed capacity, but it's just uh, a forced outage rate and deliverability assessment. How, how much energy can you actually deliver into the system with reasonable probabilities of outages? When you translate that to installed capacity, you're ranging between 5,000 megawatts and 10,000 megawatts. This would be the largest build out of supply Ontario's uh, ever undertaken. For context, Travis, how does that compare to, you know, let's take 2009 to 2015, maybe we, we, we had a lot of renewable procurement. I realize that's more of an energy asset than a, maybe a capacity asset. But how does that compare to the build out of the last, you know, of those of that five year period or so? Yeah, when you combine the kind of FIP program along with uh, the, the different phases of the FIP program, you're looking at it between installed capacity of renewables between about 5,000, 7,000 megawatts. Okay. So we're going to re repeat that again and more so. And, and, and the more so is really important because not only are we building this new supply to meet growing demand from electrification, climate change policies, and economic development, um, we also are refurbishing our nuclear fleet um, 10 units between Darlington and Bruce are, are undergoing refurbishment are not going to be finished until the early 2030s. We also have a further six to 8,000 megawatts of contracted resources reaching the end of their contract term. And so there's a clear question on, well, do they continue to operate? Do you have to replace them? If you're not replacing them, how are they being recontracted? How much longer can they operate? Do they need capital injection to rebuild? So it, it's a massive wave of supply mix change, of new build out, of repowering. Um, and it, it it's coming at a time where it's not just Ontario's facing this. I mean, you look around any other jurisdiction, whether it's New York's um, clean energy lead, all the California build out, really all other jurisdictions are looking at um, lowering the emission intensity in their supply mix and meeting a fairly rapid demand growth with you know base estimates of a doubling 
potentially of electricity demand within you know 10 to 15 years wow so we have so there's kind of three if i'm listening correctly whether it's ontario or elsewhere there's kind of three driving factors one is um just aging infrastructure one is on the demand side significant growth from presumably that's largely you know electrification of stuff i just call it stuff because who knows what it is and then and then on the supply side there's a a focus on um you know decarbonizing the supply side are those kind of the big three drivers that it that's it you nailed it right on nail on the head yeah so so how how i guess just um do you have a sense of how much of it is just end of life the refurbishment the 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 need to extend assets versus how much of it is driven by kind of the the decarbonization world that we live in because the, the second and third factors are clearly decarbonization driven the first one is just you know time goes on and and stuff needs to is it one third one third one third or is it mostly uh driven by our our need really to decarbonize you you have about half of it is um driven by new demand which is somewhat related to decarbonization yes uh, and then the other half is that kind of bucket of both decarbonizing our existing supply mix or trying to but also maintaining you know reliability stability resource adequacy um, as you deal with you know the end of life of these assets and and what exactly are you going to do with them and in many cases given the market design it's a financial question as well as a physical question. How do you ensure that you have enough capital available to maintain operation long term? Um, and that that is a difficult question in Ontario. So, with respect to um, oh man, you, 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 there were so many things there that I, I lost my specific train of thought. Um, but I wanted to oh yes, what I wanted to unpack was when you think about electricity. In, in any province, any jurisdiction, uh, you know, it, I think part of what complicates it and, and it's at, at first blush, maybe not apparent to people who aren't day to day in it is we're not talking about one commodity or we're not talking about um, one service like, you know, we're, there's, there's a bunch of stuff that the electricity market delivers to us as consumers. It's not just a kilowatt hour, right? Maybe talk to us about kind of some of the different aspects of what the the powers that be are charged with delivering, right? Yeah, no, it's a great one. And the way I usually ground it is there's, there's pillars of the electricity system. So one is, and there's four major ones, the fourth kind of just really emerging over the last decade through through global consensus. The first and foremost is, is safety, that this is a system that can be used by residential homeowners and large industrial customers in a way that is safe uh, and ensures that you know we're we're achieving what we would expect um, from from a, a broad system. The second is cost effectiveness. It it needs to be affordable. Um, you can't build a system that's gold plated and expect people to have to use it. And the interesting thing about uh, electricity is it's a very uh, monopolistic uh, commodity. Everyone uses it. It's it's a part of everyone's daily life, from you know recreation to home to to work activities. Um, which leads to the third, it, it's not really usable if it's not reliable. And so that reliability um, is very important. And, and it kind of can fall into two buckets when you talk about reliability. One is if uh, uh, an error or an unforeseen event happens on the grid that's within a reasonable expectation, the grid needs to be able to 
maintain output and deliverability to your business or to your home. And so it needs to be built with a certain amount of backup. You don't want to overbuild the backup, but you have planning standards you go to. And then the last, which is the kind of you know new evolution where you're going, is you, you want that electricity grid to be clean. Similar to all of our other energy systems, there's a lot of focus on understanding um, the impact on uh, health of the population, health of the environment, uh, long-term consequences from an insurance uh, and business activity point of view. And I mean, you can see examples of the cost of, of climate change and, and a lot of the drivers from a government policy, whether it's atmospheric rivers on BC or, uh, you know, recently uh, Hurricane Fiona uh, ripping through Atlantic Canada. And so those four are kind of the drivers. Um, and and that that is kind of the balancing act that system planners have to take on when they're determining, you know, what resources they need and what build out do they have to have. And you made a comment a minute ago about available capital. And I think there, I think that's a point that I, I certainly, you know, have, have come to understand, I think, uh, maybe not fully, but but may not be obvious to everybody. What did, what did you mean when you mentioned, you know, the need to, I think, create an environment where capital is available to, to deliver these four pillars? Yeah. So when you look into a system, like capital is not competing within just Ontario. It's it's something that that flows globally. And you're, you as investors or as financiers or even business development, if you own a business, you're trying to find the best return for your investment. And the return might not be pure dollars and cents. It's also, you know, it's a de-riskified. Um, is, it, is this something that I can deploy for a long period of time and ensure that that capital is going to be retained and grown? And so that, that competition for capital and retention is about, you know, if I'm going to deploy it in this market under the framework of the market and reasonable expectations of how that market is going to evolve, am I going to be able to get my return on my investment? And in, in many cases, um, you know, the, the electricity infrastructure we put in place is long-lived assets. This isn't machinery that lasts, you know, three to five years. This is stuff that is uh, going to um, sit in the ground for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And therefore, you need for capital to come in at its lowest possible cost. You need to provide safeguards to that while appropriately allocating risk to the operation and maintenance, you know, away from ratepayers. And that's typically the trade that you have. I'll give you long-term fixed payments in return for you as a supplier taking on, you know, the risk of development, construction, operation, and maintenance. And in that, and I, and again, this is, I know enough to be uh, dangerous, but there's, you know, the, inside of this kind of long-term guarantee, you guys develop and, and provide that risk transfer. Don't you have this um, conversation around like, energy markets versus capacity markets and like where does that kind of abstract thought experiment fit into all this yeah so i think that canada gives actually kind of a great example of two places we're going to to go to to encourage investment and and make sure that the stuff you need to get built gets built and gets built cost effectively so you're not having to pay for high capital to deploy it you kind of have two general paths you either provide this long-term fixed or guaranteed payment structure of which the risk of operation and construction is left with the one and that price is fair, or you let price scarcity dictate these terms and essentially let price spin higher or lower 
to then encourage capital to jump in and knowing that they're going to get paid when, when times get tight. And so where we stand today in Canada between Alberta and Ontario is a great example. Ontario has, as I described, this supply need. And as we're going to talk about in a little bit, the ISOs launching a long-term RFP to provide long-term contracts to build the supply resources they need. And it has to happen because the market price that exists in real time isn't allowed to really fluctuate because there's so many contracts on rate regulated. Contrast that to Alberta, which has an energy-only market design. There's no long-term contract set by government or a central entity. There's no rate-regulated assets. Essentially, buyers are left to their own devices to determine how best to meet their energy needs. They can sign bilateral contracts with either retailers or directly with generators, or they can buy spot. But it also means that when the system has tight supply conditions, in other words, we have just enough supply to meet just enough demand, prices are allowed to escalate. And we've seen in Alberta, the average price be about 200 to $300 megawatt hour compared to Ontario's you know, average of 20 to 40, 50. We've also seen price spikes where daily averages have reached 750. And just last night, Alberta uh, issued an energy emergency energy alert level three, which is the highest level. The next step is shedding load. And prices were stuck at the ceiling of $999 uh, per megawatt hour. But that is the driver for investment. And what's happening in Alberta for those that don't you know, really get into the market sign is exactly what you expect. Those high prices have encouraged and the expectation of high prices have encouraged new supply resources to get built. And there's three major supply um, resources being built, plus a number of renewables that are all expected to come on ni- next year. So those prices will moderate back down and the uh, new arrivals will be making you know, high profit margins until other new arrivals come in and you get back to this kind of long-term efficiency. And so those two dichotomies kind of describe two options. There's not a right and the wrong. But so far, in terms of you know pivoting and transition, the price scarcity seems to be winning. But there's a lot of arguments uh, in the other way, which we'll we'll get into and discuss. Wow. Uh, well, for our listeners, uh, you this is not the pay per view episode, but you are getting uh, significant value from Travis in terms of uh, how electricity systems operate. And as the listeners know, the podcast is really selfish. Like it's about me learning, you know, more. And and if they learn as a benefit, giddy up. So. Um, so this has been this has been really really great to to set the table for um, the discussion around the the long term uh, RFP and like I said you know this kind of came out I think the the RFQ stage came out in I think June it was kind of the month of June um, and it certainly you know kind of caught us by surprise because we were busy in other jurisdictions and other types of technologies and markets uh, but you know. Bring us kind of up to speed, Travis, on what is the program, kind of where are we at, uh, and then we can go down a bunch of different rabbit holes of that. Yeah, and then there are a number of rabbit holes. So <laughs> as I mentioned, the ISO says we have, you know, this four to 6,000 megawatt supply needs. So they've launched a number of procurements. Um, there are short-term procurements. There's an annual capacity auction where they purchase a certain amount for, for um, one-year commitment periods or two six-month commitment periods. But the longer term uh, procurement that you're discussing is actually done in in, uh, a few different what I'll call streams. So the first stream is this expedited long-term RFP. And this is for resources for about between 500 to 1,000 megawatts of resources targeted to be in service by 2026. Um, And the whole idea of that is there's a shortfall coming near, willing to pay 
but provide higher barriers of entry for new resources. Secondary to that, there's a long-term RFP1. That's for 1,500 or uh, for 2,500 megawatts. Um, again, effective capacity. Um, and that's expected to um, conclude sometime next year with delivery in 2029. Um, there's a third stream that hasn't been fully launched yet, but is long-term RP2, which could be another 1,500 megawatts. So when you kind of add that all up, you're getting to about uh, 5,000 megawatts there. There's also a, a, finally another stream that's kind of outside the procurement, which is for same technology. So ex existing resources offering to kind of upgrade themselves. So the main focus and everything that's going on right now is on the expediated procurement. And, and with that, there is a draft request for a proposal on the street, which kind of lays out how the ISO is going to select proponents, qualify and select them. And then there's a draft contract, which lays out how the ISO will pay these proponents, what risks they're supposed to bear and what obligations they're expected to do um, to come forward. And so what what do we kind of with our crystal ball, you know, fast forward to 2026. I mean, what what's going to materialize? So uh, I look at this and I contrast it with um, you know, some of the earlier procurements around, you mentioned the feed-in tariff program, which was, you know, very clear, we want solar, we want wind, we want, you know, biogas, uh, didn't really want biogas, but, you know, had to, had to deal with it. Um, you know, and, and it was very clear what the, what the procurement was, and it was a, it was more, in some ways, it was, it was more of an industrial policy, you know, than, than electricity policy, depending on how you look at it. But there was clarity of, okay, we know it's going to come. Like, in this case, it's it's got you know it's got a name. It's a very boring name called LT1, and doesn't really tell you anything. I think it's but but what are we going to see in terms of how often are these units going to run? What kind of technologies? And, and I know that you're 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 forecasting, and and it may or may not be what what's actually happening. But um, it's a bit more agnostic, and we're not quite sure what's going to come out the back end, or or is it is it pretty obvious to everybody except me? Well, no, it's. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very obvious. And I I mean, our firm in our client notes and stuff, you know, have been critical of the ISO of the approach they've taken to this and that we think that there is a lot of risk in the approach. Um, and I'll try and unpack that a little bit. But one is the ISO is very clearly trying to push a technology agnostic system need. This is what we want, but we don't want to support specific technology. So we want a very, very broad. The problem is from kind of a financing, as we talked about access to capital point of view, that leaves risk for all technologies, which raises the overall risk for all participants and leads to the potential for everything being more expensive or having less experienced developers wanting to participate. You're, you're, you're sending more experienced developers or lower cost of capital to, to more streamlined jurisdictions, which, which is one isn't a good thing. When I talk about the system need, very much the ICE is trying to replace you know, combined cycle gas fire generation in the system. They, they're prioritizing the benefit of stuff that can operate for eight hours or more. They're looking for a firmness of four-hour continuous delivery. And that, from a, from a capacity point of view, you know, really drives you into two different sections to, to actually be able to need it. You're either going to offer uh, energy storage facility where cost effectiveness, at least today, using battery-based technologies really ends at around four, four hours. Um, and, and or you're going to end up having some gas fire generation facilities, new builds or expansions um, that are going to show up and be able to offer that six to eight hours. The conundrum on top of all this, though, 
is the ISO is also undertaking a decarbonization study and have publicly mused with both the minister and the minister, um, uh, Mr. Todd Smith, you know, on whether new gas fire generation would be prohibited or not. And so that's leading to a lot of, I think, confusion or debate, both within the procurement design, um, but also in terms of, well, how is the ISO appropriately um, procuring? And should they be more clear that we're going to buy a certain amount of one type of resource, then go and get a different type and, and go invest it? And that, that's where a lot of this confusion is. And so you kind of ask, you know, what does the crystal ball say? I mean, we think there's going to be a lot of storage because the timelines to build um, are so short and it's very difficult to cite large resources like this. Storage is a little bit more straightforward because it's just shipping containers you're putting on the ground. Um, but that might resolve your, uh, that's in the Expedia procurement. While that might resolve your short-term capacity need, um, storage is a net load on the system. It, it loses energy when it cycles. So you're going to need more energy on the back end to serve all that energy storage of which you have to find new resources that they themselves are gonna be difficult to build. So it, it's really up in the air. And we, we think from our viewpoint, you know, there's still a lot of different types of resources on the table when you talk about the long-term RFP. And on that, you, know, you mentioned that four hour minimum, you know, preference for longer dispatch. Uh, I mean, that's a dispatch event. I mean, do you, is this something that's gonna be happening kind of every weekday or, you know, uh, is it going to be happening, you know, a bunch of times in the summer and that's it? Like, do you have a sense of how often and, and how's it going to, you know, practically speaking work? I mean, is there a clear dispatch signal to these folks that are in the market? Uh, how do you see it in practicality? Working? Yeah, I'll, I'll start at the, the back end of your question and come back to how, how might it okay. work. So, so the way the contract has been floated out is essentially the ISO is putting what's called a must offer provision. So once you are up and running as a facility and you're a participant, you're obligated to become a market participant in the ISO's administered markets. And then you're obligated to offer your capacity through qualifying hours, which is essentially business days from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. Okay. every day. Now, you make an offer in on terms of what you think the cost of your energy is, and the ISO will know your capacity is there. The cost of that energy might vary day to day, week to week, year to year out. But at the end of the day, you have to make sure that capacity is available in those qualifying hours. And the ISO's administered kind of real-time energy market signal, every five minutes creates a supply stack that matches demand. And everyone within the supply stack that falls under demand is, is dispatched on, is turned to, told to produce power. So depending on where your energy is and how tight supply conditions are, you might run only a few hours a year or you might run a lot. So then to your to your actual question when it comes down there is what exactly is the um, your future market run? We think the market's going to get very tight and we think there's a good chance that you might run a lot more often. Mm -hmm. and, and that would be, you know, almost uh, most business days of the year, really depending on where you put your energy operate. But but if if we become that short, there, there's a real issue to that. And so how does that if you have to offer as an energy storage play? for a business day and but you only have four hours of storage like if they call you at 8 a.m you're done at noon like maybe i'm asking the wrong question but how does that no, work it's, it's it's dead on so because it's it's a must it's not a must run it's just a must offer so you offer your energy they drew it down for four hours and now there's obligations that in the contract and they're still up for demand 
where you wouldn't have any other obligations for the rest of the day. You've done your bit and you're finished. But that's part of this issue of trying to be technology agnostic because that may not necessarily be what you want. Or even worse, you drain all of your energy storage early and you're left with kind of less resources later in the day. Less resources and, and you know, supply and demand more expensive resources, right? Correct, correct. Could be. And, and, and our... The other one to recognize under all this is like, so we're talking contract. And as I've tried to explain, you're going to participate in the market. I think it's important for everyone to recognize that the ISO is undergoing or attempting to undergo the most comprehensive overhaul of their market design in the last two decades through what's been called a market renewal program. And without getting into all the details, there are kind of major changes. One is the establishment of a financially binding day ahead market. So you actually can get a schedule the day ahead on what you should do the next day. They're also going to adopt for supply side locational marginal prices. So there's going to be a different price paid for every node in the system. And a node is essentially a transformer station where you connect. Okay. So when you're trying to predict your market revenue into a future where the market itself is changing, and that's just so much extra risk, which is very difficult. One, to inform your financing, whether it's an investment committee at your company or a project financer at an equity or a bank, you know, what this change is and what it means for your revenue. But then how do you use all that to, to end up with, at the end of the day, is a capacity price you're bidding, a dollars per megawatt year number. Now, how does that, so that's the other piece that, you know, this is benefit to the listeners because, you know, the host can ask dumb questions. So in this, if, if I'm doing a project and I have, I'm bidding into the RFP um, and, and, the, and I'm successful, am I getting two revenue streams? Am I getting paid to be there and then I'm getting paid for the energy I deliver? That, that is correct. So you're gonna have what's called a capacity payment uh, and it's, it's based on a dollars per megawatt day. Um, and then any market revenue that you um, make you get to essentially keep in, in one way or another. Um, there's there's an energy storage spread, which I won't get into, but your your concept is right. You have this payment to be there, and then you have a payment for participation. So I'm, you know, I'm, I didn't go to Queens, I went to Mac. So, you know, <laughs> di- different, you know, different uh, level of IQ perhaps, but um, I, I look at this and I say, well, can I structure my capacity payment to pay my fixed costs? And, and bid into the market to pay my variable costs. Have I oversimplified it? Or is that like, where's, where's the risk to the, to the owner operator of the asset? Aren't they, aren't they, I guess the risk is you don't get a contract because you bid too high of a capacity price maybe, I don't know. But what, what am I missing there? No, you're, you're right. I mean, that's essentially how it, it somewhat boils down is that your, your capacity costs that kind of cover your fixed costs and then you have this variable. The, the risk comes in, okay, you put this, price for before you've applied for permitting, before you've applied for your connection impact assessment, before you've actually secured your major supplier, before you've built it, before you start to operate. And that, and that's kind of a fair risk assessment. You as the operator or project developer, that's where your skill set is. The ISO doesn't build system. They, they manage the system. Um, but the other risk is, you know, when you go to put your bid in and you want to win, you're going to assume a certain amount of variable cost that you're going to make and that might lower your fixed bid cost to make yourself competitive i see if if you're over aggressive you might lose money if you're overly conservative you might not win the procurement you get no contract to build so that that is where the competitive tension 
should lie. Um, but but there's other issues that layer on top of it that can can cause harm to ratepayers in the long run. Well, if I if I underbid my capacity, then I'm gonna and I get a job, my I'm gonna bid my energy much higher than than it should be, right? Aren't we gonna drive the energy price up in that scenario? You you may. I mean, there's a whole dynamic in the market of you should be offering marginal costs and there's a market power mitigation, but but Honestly, that is where you can start to end up. That you're you have a, a higher variable cost because you you have more risk in your asset that you're trying to operate to. So what are some of the so the, the RFP is kind of open in the expedited process right now. Um, what are some of the kind of the elements of the RFP that are you know are keeping people busy and and I think they're going to play out in the LT1 as well in terms of people who might be interested in in the development or involved in it. Um, what are some of the key kind of emphasis or kind of criteria in the development of a, of a bid into the RFP? Yeah, so the, the ISO is using a uh, form of an evaluated criteria to, to determine, you know, which um, uh, proportional adjustments to a proponent's bid price. Um, so one of these is geographic location. They're trying to encourage resources to be site in, in areas where the system needs it the most. And so they're providing essentially points if you're located uh, in the Windsor-Essex region, if you're uh, the eastern part of the GTA and stuff like that. They're also giving points, as we discussed, for longer duration. So this would be stuff that's greater than four hours, greater than six hours, greater than eight hours uh, of continuous production capability. Um, They have what's referred to as a municipal council support resolution points um, and looking at, you know, um, trying to demonstrate that you as a project developer have engaged with the community early and gotten their support. Um, I think it's important to recognize that that um, aspect, which was part of the large renewable procurement in 2014-15, was primarily a workaround for the existing Green Energy and Economy Act, which gave a lot of um, bypass to municipal planning. Um, that has been changed with amendments to that act done by um, the current government or the previous administration of the current government um, and is likely not as valuable as it was before but it's still a requirement in Mm. in the draft rfp and draft contract Um, and then what's really keeping most people up at night is trying to understand what is going to be the cost of my project and what is going to be my future market revenues and how will the settlement of this contract work with respect to my financing and everything that goes out to do that. And that's, I mean, that's where our firm has been very active because we we have in the past designed procurements and designed proj- um, contracts in other jurisdictions on behalf of, you know, government agencies or entities looking to purchase power. So what's your sense? Is, is it going to be, you know, there's a target of 1,000 or 1,500 megawatts in this expedited process. Is it going to be, you know, three or four or five large projects that come through the back end? Is it like, you know, the, the way it was framed in the RFQ was, you know, we want, you know, uh, one to five megawatt projects, and then we want five to 600 megawatt projects. Uh, and yet, and, and so our, I think, certainly for CEM, our, our strength is is more on the smaller size, we can go bigger, but, um, but there didn't seem to be any kind of emphasis in the RFP for smaller stuff. Like you, you, it was a way to qualify, but to me, it's like, well, bigger is better because you're going to get lower dollar per kilowatt, you know, installed price for the most part. Um, and are we just going to see, you know, 10 large projects and and no benefit on the small projects or what's your sense? 
Uh, it's, it's difficult to answer because you don't know where everyone's going to chase, but there's a few kind of areas where you can triangulate. One is the ISO is performing what they call a deliverability assessment, essentially trying to test and say, will you be able to send your power into the system and get it to load centers when we need it the most? And if you have a bunch of large projects, which might be cost competitive, but are all in the same area, they're probably going to end up clogging the system. And therefore, the ISO is going to reject a bunch of them. And smaller projects located, which may be more expensive or maybe cheaper, in other parts of the system would therefore be picked next. Two, if you, you have such a supply need, you try and make sure you fill your bucket. You might start with large rocks, but over time, you're going to fill up the last of the space with sand. And that's where small projects ha- have, have an objective. And then finally, like a large project also carries its same risk. And you have certain environmental requirements that might be difficult to accomplish with a large project. You also have um, uh, community engagement, land acquisition, and build times, where a small project can probably get to that 2026 date a lot easier than a large project. And and therefore, you know, that's something to consider. And again, part of this is why you want to have competitive tensions. Um, because it, it forces those proponents that are participating to consider and put forward their best foot. Um, but it also is why you want to have a really good procurement design, because you don't want to end up in a situation where you're getting either A, all the same thing, um, and it's not going to actually meet your need, or B, you're getting you know too much confusion, you're not getting you know really well-scoped projects as people are trying to balance too many risks. Are you glad you're not inside the ISO running this and you're on the outside looking in? Like, there's a, there's, there's a lot at stake here, isn't there? It, it, there is a lot at stake, and we're only in the first phase. You know, Power Advisory is a firm, our big baseball fans, uh, go Blue Jays. We, right. we kind of talked about this. This is the second inning. You know, the first inning was recognizing we have to go buy something uh, as Ontario and that we have a big build. This is the second inning is the first, you know, attempt at, trying to figure out we, we think there's a lot of flaws with the approach that's come forward and there's a lot of risk um in particular buying in two big chunks both mm. expedient and this causes a lot of risk because not only might you be buying commodities at a time that you're at the wrong part of the cycle and if you look at lithium prices right now you probably don't want to be buying a lot of energy storage but the other one is if you have errors emissions problems with your contract, with your RFP, you're packaging them all together at once. And you have no ability to evolve over time and read feedback and do stuff. And we, we think a better approach, and, and New York is doing this through the NYSERT, is you should be establishing annual procurements and set a certain amount and do this year after year so that as you're developing a project, you might not be successful in the first year, you at least get a second shot and a third shot and so on. And you can then calibrate what you buy to match how your system's evolving. So you don't buy a whole bunch of one resource and realize I didn't need all that one resource. Right. I needed actually a second type. And, and I think that that in particular is one of the biggest risks. The, the last risk in my mind though is you also have all this risk allocation and capital requirements, technology advancements, procurements, um, participants evolve over time. You don't want to end up in a situation where you end up procuring with um, proponents that you may not necessarily want building those projects or be bringing stuff that you don't really enjoy or, or or the worst of all is awarding a contract to a proponent that can't successfully deliver the project because then you've wasted time and you're standing at a later date with the capacity crunch coming at you faster and having to re-engage a procurement process and that that's not helpful you're, you're better to to 
march it out in a consistent and allow your natural uh, attrition to occur and know that you always have something else in the pipeline that you're able to kind of rebuild. And what I like about that, you know, annual and incremental approach is, is you also hopefully could, could seed into that, you know, the innovation that's happening in the market, right? There's just so much, and and how much of that innovation could come from, you know, domestic sources and, and Ontario-based sources, right? Like, you know, and it's hard to do that in a big procurement, but if we're, if we're, if we're taking reps every year, you know, new at-bats every year to build on the analogy, you could definitely, you know, filter that into the process, right? Exactly. And I, we think one of the things that's really missing out of all of this is there's a lot of both distributed energy resources, but load-based offerings that are not being explored appropriately, mm-hmm. that we have really adaptable industrial and commercial customers throughout the system that should be engaged and you should be looking at procurements to get electricity services out of them, whether it's traditional demand response, such as you know turning on and off equipment based on a price signal or even on an instruction, or new equipment that is adaptive to pricing, is able to adjust its output, shift its output, uh, in one way or another. And, and that's something you really want to be exploring because in a world that you're doubling your electricity demand, every megawatt counts. Um, and and the real challenge for, for a net zero world is balancing the impact on the environment to build everything we need to build um, with at the same time lowering emissions. And there's there's no one path forward. This This really is a multivariable problem and you should be exploring all your options. You had to bring up multivariable. Uh, now, now you've got me back to third year calculus, and I'm I still I still wake up in a cold sweat every once in a while, thinking I did not pass that course. Uh, for, for the record, I did. I don't know how, but uh, multivariable. But you're right, and 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 you're you're too uh, too polite to answer the question. But I I am glad I don't work at the ISO because it is they have a you know this is a challenging uh, challenging time in front of them for sure. Um, so, I mean, uh, Travis, this has been phenomenal, and, and we need to be mindful of of your time, given uh, given how busy you are, and you got to uh, probably put up uh, put up streamers and prep for the party tonight yet. So, uh, what what's your advice for folks who, you know, I think the expedited is probably, you know, if you're not, you know, actively, you know, engaged, you know, it's probably too late kind of thing. But in terms of the LT1 and even LT2, I mean, for those who are, you know, interested in the Ontario market, who, you know, might have um, you know, some maybe it's industrial or institutional facilities who are are you know are, are open to doing some stuff. I mean, what's your advice to folks in terms of trying to get their head around this and how to participate? I, I'd even go wider. I think the the core message is Ontario needs new supply, uh, a significant amount of it. The ISOs put forward their first attempt at a procurement design through the expedited and LT one, of which you can go and review and understand. But there's also a lot of other different paths that are going to end up being explored. Um, the governments, for example, um, is discussing a clean uh, energy credit mechanism that could be a process of funding new supply resources. There's a lot of energy efficiency, CDM, and demand response that industrial and commercial customers. So, so the core one is recognized. Um, mm. There's a lot of capital that needs to be deployed in Ontario's electricity system on the supply side. Um, and therefore, there's going to be a lot of opportunities. It might be directly with the ISO. It may be with LDCs and transmitters, or it may be so through uh, direct engagements with with large customers in one way or another. 
So uh, your advice is to uh, to reach out to your uh, management consultant at Power Advisory, and they can help you navigate that. That's it. Exactly. We, yes. We'd be happy, and as heard, we, we, we like to have a good time as well. So That's right. That's right. So, um, Travis, this has been great. Uh, joking aside, how, how how is the best place for people to find you, website or LinkedIn? or uh, you, Yeah, two, two places. I mean, our website, poweradvisoryllc.com, uh, kind of has all of our information there. Um, we, we also uh, have an active LinkedIn um, presence. Uh, if you look up my name or any of my uh, colleagues there, um, and, you know, we'd be happy to get in touch and, and help you out and, you know, really appreciate having you on, having me on the podcast uh, and, and discussing. Um, I'm, I'm a resident nerd, so I always enjoy talking about this stuff. Awesome. A resident nerd and, and certainly well versed. Uh, Travis, thank you very much. Wish I could be at the event tonight. Um, but uh, there's only one one place that would keep me away from a good event like that, and that's that's with my kids. So uh, wish you guys all the best. Thank you for your time and and your sharing your knowledge so freely. Uh, and we will have to catch up uh, yet this fall uh, sometime face to face. So thanks, Travis. Thanks, Matt. Thanks,